0: Hello everyone, my name is Nicholas Ward and this is Historical Hysteria. Today is a special bonus episode, which is the interview that I did with Dr. Michael Brown of Lancaster University. Uh, I don't normally put up my interviews, but this was one of my better ones, and Dr. Robert Liston was both one of my more popular episodes, and was personally my favourite episode, because it is the one that I put the most work into. Uh, Fair warning, I had a technical issue right at the beginning of the recording, so I actually only started recording the interview about five minutes in. Uh, for context, I'm going to go straight into Dr. Brown answering a question. The question was, uh, how does he find these, uh, as a historian, how does he go about finding uh, myths in history and how does he go about identifying? Um, so without further ado, I will let Dr. Brown talk for himself. And I, I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Uh, sorry, you were saying?
1: Yeah, so I've, as an academic historian, I've always been something distrustful of those kind of narratives that get reproduced very easily and kind of you know recycle through through kind of popular culture uh, and often as you as you say in in quite kind of seemingly authoritative uh sort of you know mediums like bbc or 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 other kinds of um kind of uh you know, jour- you know sort of popular journals and that kind of thing um and and so and there's a I knew there was a lot of it around the history of surgery um and I've been kind of you know working on history of medicine history of surgery for many years and and you get these kind of stories that are often, I think, told by surgeons themselves. I mean, I think, you know, this is where a lot of these stories often come from, is they don't necessarily originate with historians or even with, with popular historians or with journalists. I think they often originate as, as sort of um you know professional stories um and that get kind of blown out of all proportion and recycled and they take on new forms and Um, And so, yeah, one was always, you know, one could probably do this with any number of of these of these incidents where these kind of anecdotes sort of trace them through on their origins. But I I knew that Liston had a lot of these attached to him because of his sort of emblematic status as a, as I say, as I say in the book, as the kind of last of the surgical old guard, as this man who stood on a kind of threshold of the old and the new. um, I love that
0: image of, uh, of Robert Liston.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, because he's, he, because he, you know, because in some ways he's associated with, you know, the first use of anaesthesia in Europe, he's in a sense a figure of modernity, but then because he dies so shortly afterwards and because he's so associated with that supposed flamboyance and, and, and sort of show the showmanship and the, and the kind of manual dexterity and the speed of pre-anesthetic surgery, he sort of is in this liminal space and, and, and so he becomes this kind of totemic figure. I mean, he was, he, as you, you know, may have known for, seen from the book. I mean, he, he was kind of, he was a, you know, he was a famous man in his own times, no doubt about that. But he becomes this sort of, yeah, this icon, and 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 so these stories start to circulate around him, and especially, of course, around the 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 mm-hmm. first use of e, the first use of um, um, ether, mm-hmm. um, and it, you know, and they, these stories begin to attach to that incident, and and so I sort of came because I I knew I'd known they've got the Yankee Dodge kind of comment. For example is one of those things that circulated and actually not just in popular histories but even actually in 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 very very um academically rigorous books um like Alison Winter's Mesmerised which is a, a you know a, a fantastic history of, of mesmerism where she kind of cites this you know this 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 idea about him saying um you know that uh that either was yankee dodge that beat mesmerism hollow and she actually cites uh, a bmj article that doesn't contain that reference <laughs> you know and 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 again it's, it's there are other there are other kind of um articles in the late 19th 20th century that do but there's very little at the time that actually
0: yeah
1: any kind of suggestion of that but that's what's being said and in terms of what we wanted to talk about which is this kind of the apocryphal story of the you know the triple knockout um I mean, I'm still cautious that I've not, you know, I I think I assume I found the kind of roots, but I'm still not entirely sure because it, you know, it my my you know my kind of I traced it back, you know, through, um, uh, uh Gordon's book, um, uh, you know, kind of through the into the kind of um uh 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 the 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 kind of the, the material that you were looking at the kind of early 20th century material from UCL magazine. A uch magazine kind of edwin cock articles so on and then but there's also this kind of other it takes you to other deviate down other parts like the vangenstein's book which quotes you know a surgeon of the liston era you know removing someone's testicles and and and, and oh know,
0: yes it, i saw that from it's, the it's, 1970s kind of right, melange, it's, uh, uh, yeah it's
1: like gordon had this kind of melange of, of 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 different stories um and sort of produced his own version of it. <laughs> his own version of it and of course, what's interesting about the Wangenstein uh, book is they, you know, Owen Wangenstein was a, was, a, was was had surgical training and had been trained in London, and it was you know someone he knew, you know, who had been trained by Starling, who, yeah, and this story had kind of come down through British medical yeah, yeah. training, um, and it wasn't even Liston, you know, it was it was a surgeon of that era had done this, and then it becomes attached Liston because he's the sort of emblematic figure of that of that of that period in many ways. It's a little bit like how
0: all all sort of wise quotes from about the eighteenth century get attributed to Benjamin Franklin and all wise quotes from the twentieth century get uh, get attributed to like Gandhi or somebody.
1: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, you know, and it's exactly it's that kind of thing, you know, did Einstein really say that? Did Abraham Lincoln really say that? You know,
0: or is this He never did?
1: <laughs> no, exactly. And 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 you know, very rare or, or there may be some sort of tenuous version of that phrasing or that idea that's you know out of con taken out of context yeah so these things circulate they they become kind of almost like you know almost like memes i guess they, they 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 circulate and they and they proliferate and they end up becoming so um sort of widely widely distributed that they become accepted as fact even though there's no actual you know um tangible evidence for them so, yeah, so I mean, it was interesting that we both came. I mean, it's it's fascinating to see that you that we both trod the same path effectively through kind of Gordon and um 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 and and then, and then to these early 20th century uh articles in 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 the UCH magazine. And let's say I think that's really important because that's I think of where from the root of these stories they sort of myth making by post anaesthetic surgeon, post anaesthetic, and I think particularly post antiseptic era surgeons. Hmm. So, you know. Part of what I argue in the book is that the image that we have of pre-anesthetic surgery is fundamentally shaped by a post-Lysterian surgical profession that wants to kind of cast the sort of pre-anesthetic and I think in particular the pre-antiseptic past as well as this kind of era of great brutality um, and and kind of not necessarily cruelty but, but of callousness, a kind of necessary callousness necessary inhumanity is the the famous phrase from william hunter has it Mm. um and of of kind of of this world having been redeemed you know by lister by by the pioneers of of modern surgery and so they they sort of yeah they they construct these stories in a part to suit their own i think i suit their own endeavors and their own agendas uh, to present themselves as men of modernity right um as the kind of ones who've who've you know cast this benighted past into the dark ages and, and kind of Saved everyone through their great heroic um, uh, scientific expertise. So, yeah. So that's that's. I mean, it's rambling kind of way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, it's fantastic. I love this kind of thing. It's um that that observation about like uh wanting to separate the pre anesthetic and the post anesthetic worlds. It was when I read that in the book. It's so perfectly aligned with something I'd been researching into uh uh like concept our uh, conceptions of the past, especially the uh, the Middle Ages. And there was this historian from the nineteen 19- thirties I think who basically wrote an article uh, who wrote a paper uh, I think it was for the University of Chicago where he was saying that so much of our conception of the of the uh, medieval world comes from an idea that well things are good now things were bad in the past so if things yeah. are good now then think about how much worse they must have been in the past yeah. and then taking problems in the modern world and putting them into a context that they never existed in he yeah. was specifically talking about uh was something odd like horse when you were overrunning the streets of paris but he was basically like and then saying like how it's it was actually it would have been cleaner in the streets of paris because of yeah. certain xyz but it was it's just yeah, like yeah. such a perfect uh equivalence that's constantly trying to put um trying to put these arbitrary blocks in history and be like that was savagery and this is enlightenment
1: yeah absolutely and, and you know and people at the time do it i mean you know they they, they, they almost do it consciously i mean of course the, the the difficulty i always find with with trying to articulate this argument right that that much of what we think about the pre-anaesthetic past is a product of the post-anaesthetic world and indeed the post-antiseptic world, so the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Because people in the immediate post-anaesthetic world remember, you know, they remember what it was like, they're products of that world in many ways, and it really takes another generation for it to shift and become almost entirely removed. So I think, List, you know, Joseph, this is a really interesting, present at, at, at Liston's distance operation as a student and that's part of his mythos in a way you know that he was there so he's kind of he's like he's a sort of you know he has a, 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 a he's within touching distance of it but he's kind of removed from it yeah um and, and so it's, it's the human the people who come after him who have especially those who have no experience of what the pre-anesthetic world was like who kind of construct this this particular myth but yeah to go back to what i'm saying the, the the problem i always encounter with this point making making this point about about you know, the kind of construction of the past to suit the needs of the present, is that what I don't want to say is that the, the pre-anesthetic past was great. <laughs> you know, <that> is, <laughs> a kind of no, it project. wouldn't have been pleasant. Say, oh, it was actually brilliant. And 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 no one, you know, <laughs> it wasn't as bad as we made out. It was obviously bad. I mean, you know, like objectively, the the, the, the introduction of pain relief for surgery was a good thing, right? It was a good thing for, and people at the time say for say for patients and for surgeons. But I think as a historian, you're always wanting to kind of point out the complexities of things, you know, and actually trying to approach the past on its own terms, and not and not sort of you know looking at it. It's impossible to to, to not see the past through, through a through a contemporary lens, of mm-hmm. course. Uh, uh, but but to kind of understand it in its own terms and understand it and see how it see you know see the past as contemporary saw it. Yeah, and that goes to <clears> the <throat> point about the medieval you know medieval period. You know, it's it's, it's less mm-hmm. about you know. We want to get cut through all that stuff about um, what, what purpose the medieval period serves for us in terms of distinguishing our modernity uh, and actually how did medieval people view the world? You know, that's what we want to know about. And that's what I love about history mm-hmm. is is that alterity, that otherness, that that, you know, understanding the world through the eyes of people who are not like us in many ways, you know, who don't have the same experience as us, don't have the same perceptions as us um have a different way of thinking different way of feeling Uh, and that's why i think i was really interested in the emotional side of surgery because you know one of the one of the kind of great questions that's never really been answered i think until until now he says with great great, (laughs) uh, arrogance but i know um you know is is, what did it feel like you know what what was it what was it like as to, to 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 contemplate um those kinds of procedures Without pain relief, without meaningful pain relief, and with and with actually, you know, significantly less chance of success than we would anticipate today, um, knowing it's basically a, a highly risky strategy to, you know, to you know, a last resort, basically, um, and that's what I wanted to get at, really and 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 liston has been brilliant for it in many ways i mean listons a, he's still a fascinating character a complex character
0: yeah even even without the myth his uh, his story is very yeah. very fascinating
1: yeah i mean he's he's
0: almost more interesting
1: without it in a sense because he just becomes a sort of cartoon character in a stock you know a stock figure i mean it's interesting that a lot of historians are drawn to him i mean a lot of popular historians are drawn to him so you know lindsay he features he features in Lindsay Fitz harris's book by joseph Lister. As the kind of totemic figure of of of, of the pre-anesthetic world, he features in, I forget his name now. Um, that the Blood and Guts book that was a kind of tie into the BBC series, Michael Moses' BBC series. Um, you know, he is this sort of you know representative of of, of 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 the old world in a way that Ashley Cooper could easily have been, for example. You know, what I mean, like people immediately, bef- you know, people of of listeners' generation saw Ashley Cooper as the kind of greatest. Um, operative surgeon of the, of of the early nineteenth century, and then may they say that maybe Listers reached him or eclipsed him. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that he he is this, but he's he's fascinating for a variety of different ways for, for the for the kind of way he he balances this sort of physicality with a kind of sensitivity. Um, I mean, he's probably he's probably slightly more gruff and 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 rough around the edges than. Than some, certainly than someone like Cooper, who kind of stars himself as a as a kind of gentleman of great, of refined feeling and, and, and a society man. You know, he's a he's a he's a you know, he's he's got a knighthood, he's he's uh he's he's friends with aristocrats. Um Listen is a bit kind of coarser and rougher than that. But he still has this kind of um, he still talks about the patient's mood and patient's feelings as being really important in in surgical practice. Um yeah, so. You know, I think I said you think he's fascinating, despite you know, regardless of the myth. Um, although the, yeah, the myth, yeah, is- yeah, he
0: definitely <laughs> is. Like his his role as like a student hero was uh, yeah. was the, uh, probably my favorite part of the historical narrative of him. Like, uh, was it like a thousand students um, yeah. lined the roads uh, during his funeral? That was uh, yeah. I thought that was really interesting because you don't hear about sort of student heroes very often during that period of history, at least not coming from the faculty.
1: No, um absolutely. And is, as you said as you, you know as he put as I probably kind of you know you may have got from the book. I mean, one of the reasons for that, I think one of the principal reasons for that, not only because of his um appeal as a as a practitioner, as a surgeon as 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 and as a teacher, is also the fact that he's strongly identified with defending the student's interests. So you know L- early nineteenth century london, um you know the the medical world of early nineteenth century is london of London is one riven by political factionalism um and you know the yeah you know, the sort of the idea of of of, of the, the kind of surgical students as being a kind of an oppressed group exploited potentially by um high profile um well-established hospital surgeons who kind of you know um, squeezing them for their fees and, and and maybe not giving them what they should and you know and 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 along with um you know and, and kind of victims of the, of the medical establishment as it were along with you know listed aligns himself with thomas wackley and and the lancet and and the kind of radical element of 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 london surgery and i think that does a lot to to kind of um to enhance his reputation with surgeons with students i mean other others other surgeons too have a kind of very large student body you know and it's interesting to think about those cultures um we tend to think now of i think of 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 medical teaching as something which is provided by a school you know and of and said you know each each kind of you know practitioner or or each teacher is more or less interchangeable as an expert you know as long as they've got the right qualifications and they've done the right training they should be able to teach you what you need to know i think i think early 19th century surgery is much more driven by personalities by a kind of individualized relationship between you know the the surgeon and his trainings um and is that
0: do you think that's a part of where um some of robert liston's myths come from the sort of popularity amongst his students
1: yeah for sure for sure absolutely
0: i mean ironically ironically i think what this is probably getting into
1: slightly arcane historical debate here but i think what wackley and Liston, or certainly wackley is trying to to do in a sense with his um with his campaign is actually get past the idea of personality has been being being a being a, actually and, and and kind of seeing expertise as residing in experience qualification merit and all those kinds of things you know so actually you shouldn't you shouldn't really be celebrated because of you know you're this great man etc cetera, etc cetera. you should be celebrated because you're competent and actually because you've gone through the required training and all these kinds of things but certainly i think that listens yeah listens listens popularity is, is, is a lot to do with with the kind of cultures of personality yeah um i mean you see that again in the book with with even when he was teaching in edinburgh you know he had a he had a significant following there um with with, with kind of you know students who thought he was the greatest um and that continues and again i think the medical press helps to make it you know he becomes as i say in the book at first he's treated with great skepticism by certainly by the lancet and by the london press you see him as this sort of slightly showy Scots upstart um and then and then um you know becomes very much a kind of darling of, of the medical press so certainly of the radical medical press the lancet um who kind of hailed him as the great sort of successor to ashley cleaver basically
0: hmm. I'm not sure I don't think I checked the Lancet but I checked uh when I was still tr- when I was trying to um find a record of that for that 300% mortality uh yeah. surgery I went and I checked the London Gazette archives and the yeah. Edinburgh yeah Edinburgh Gazette archives and I found like yeah. his obituary and some some papers about him but I could never like uh, and there were some things about like some showy stories uh, a bit more uh, probably more toned down since they weren't really targeted to a medical audience yeah. um but i'll have to i'll have to look at the at the lancet well i've i've titles. looked at the lancet
1: because i think one of the one of the challenges of of, of 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 kind of using the lancet if you don't have a, a a university account is that it's 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 owned by Elsevier, the the great uh the great monopolist publication house <laughs> of, of scientific publishing and and so it's it's very expensive to get oh, <laughs> to and and generally it's only universities with kind of access with medical schools or something that have a subscription. So I so I have so I've got you know institutional access to it. And it's it's great because it's keyword searchable um across the entire history. And I have not found any in, anything
0: like that. Yeah.
1: I mean, as I show in the book, I mean there are <laughs> ambivalent representations of List Liston, especially in the early days when he's still in yeah. Edinburgh. Yeah. There are there are there are there are deeply kind of ambivalent representations of him as kind of overly physical, overly um sort of um lacking in compassion, um, and of being quite brutish. There's a thing I quote in the in in the book um by one of the Lancet's correspondents called Scottus, who's basically the Scottish correspondent, an anonymous Scottish correspondent for the Lancet, who kind of refers to him as being like this, almost like this kind of monstrous creature. Um, who is sort of entirely physical and not and not emotional, yeah. um, uh, and so in, in a weird way, the stories about Listen are not totally at odds with his contemporary reputation. I mean, they they work. No, we did sing devices. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they 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 kind of they they they're just a kind of hyper a You know, they're kind of uh, kind of more extreme version of kind of things that were circulating at the time that he was that that he was kind of all about physical dexterity and skill and less about judgment or or or, or um or compassion or humanity mm. um which i think is unfair actually if you look at his own writings and actually what others say about him but that that certainly is something that circulates that you can either be one or the other right i think it's you know, it's, it's 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 difficult to find a kind of a happy medium between sort of um manual physical dexterity and skill and also compassion judgment and and that's what contemporary surgeons are really trying to do Mm. you know they're trying to say there's a balance here between um the physical aspects of surgery and the kind of cerebral and emotional
0: aspects of it Um, that desire for good guys and bad guys in history seems to play into it Oh absolutely yeah I mean,
1: although although, interestingly I think Liston is it hovers somewhere in between those things you know I, do, I don't think he's a straight up bad guy in those narratives um in in the kind of popular histories I don't think he's seen as he's seen as kind of you know like emblematic of a brutal time for someone who's still skilled and is doing his best whatever I think he's a kind of um he's an ambivalent figure there are certainly bad guys yeah yeah I mean um, and there are and there are certainly good guys and and I think I mean in some ways someone like Lindsey harris in her book Butchering Art you know would she doesn't explicitly do this but might kind of counterpose Liston with someone like Joseph Lister you know um, as the kind of hero he's definitely the hero of her story without a doubt I mean, he's he's, he, he's the kind of he's he's the kind of it's the hero's journey effectively book but, um, but yeah List, Liston is the counterpoint to that um, you know he's the old guard. And um, but and I think there's actually also a desire to you know I think you know medical practitioners um, themselves and surgeons and anatomists have an ambivalent identity in the imagination you know I think there
0: is still a bit of a stereotype of surgeons today being all psychopaths yeah yeah
1: and it's not unreasonable incidentally (laughs) I mean there was something I quote in the book is is um, Stephen Westerby um who's a very well known british heart surgeon um uh, at, at the radcliffe hospital in oxford um and there's an interview he gave um uh, um along with um uh, I I've always forgotten his i was forget his name now i'm, gonna, I'm just going to find it but it was it was an interview he gave with um henry marsh sorry yes the 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 neurosurgeon in um the financial times from years ago. And Stephen Westerby explicitly states that he is a psychopath, basically, and that you have to be a psychopath to be a good surgeon. Um, And he, he actually claims that he basically he suffered an injury a brain injury while playing rugby at school and it basically removed his sort of empathy and made him huh. the best so it's That's weird that, I mean he's not an he's not an uncontroversial figure incidentally but but I mean it's weird that that you would present that as a kind of as a professional ideal <laughs> it's a professional ideal for what is effectively a caring profession we, we're led to believe so I think there is that reputation and I think it's something which have been part cultivated themselves I mean one of my my um one of my my uh, colleagues from the project my my, my my research fellow who's who's written a book about the kind of modern surgical ideal Agnes Agnes Anna Forster um you know she you know talks about the kind of ways in which you know, the, the image of the contemporary surgeon is very much male um and and high status and arrogant and aloof and that is the kind of that is the image that they that they have and it's one that in part has been cultivated over some time um so yeah it's 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 you know and I, but I think even historically speaking, there's a lot of contentiousness surrounding anatomists um and surgeons in the past so for example you know the appropriation of bodies that's 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 one thing that mm. kind of has 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 um drawn a lot of attention uh so the hunters for example john hunter in particular you know the there's still controversy over over the hunterian museum which is currently you know due to open reopen again in early next year but the but the, the um the, you know the corpse of uh, the body of um, the, the quote-unquote Irish giant uh, uh, Bert, you know Byrne um, whose first name I might temporarily forget but um, Charles Byrne Charles Byrne yeah who who's who was this kind of you know giant of a man who who was a sort of who did the, the rounds of, of 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 18th century um, popular popular shows quote-unquote quote, freak shows or whatever showing off his his stature and when he died he, you know he he was he feared that his body would be um, claimed by the surgeons, um, so he had himself buried at sea. But John Hunter paid people to go mm-hmm. out and basically dredge his body back up.
0: And now wow, it's still, the, the, no, I've yeah. that I've really not heard that story. I've not heard that. Charles Charles
1: Yeah, oh. he's he's still his body and and its presence in the um, Hunterian Museum is still a matter of great controversy, and actually has has become subject to even more, more recently to, to obviously it never really seems to go away um because you know it's seen as deeply unethical and of course it is deeply unethical um you know his his body was appropriated without his consent by a surgeon who was interested in it you know for his own purposes his own kind of interest in anatomy human anatomy um and and you know with all the kinds of re-evaluations that are going on in the in the public realm about empire about about you know race about colonization about appropriation about exploitation um yeah. be that racial or gendered or whatever the idea that this guy had his body stolen you know by medical authority and from displays is is, is it elicits a lot of a lot of um controversy and it was central to hunter's identity i mean it's a famous portrait um of of, of um john hunter by joshua reynolds which has burns legs in the background you know? so he's <laughs> clearly very proud of him but i think that kind of idea and. mean there's been other accusations in the past, in the relatively recent past, about hunters, um, John and William Hunter, and 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 their their kind of you know appropriation of fetuses for um, their study of embryology um, and midwifery and and uh, um, and obstetrics, and you know this idea that they there was a there was a controversial idea that completely unproven or completely unevidenced but that they they, they murdered women or certainly
0: you know. You
1: know, there's an idea, I think, to see them as kind of Frankenstein characters, as ghoulish,
0: and, 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 um... I imagine stories like that would have, uh, been supercharged by, like, the Burke and Hare murders in, in Edinburgh.
1: Oh, oh, for sure, yeah, I mean, this is, that's a very good point, I mean, yeah, I mean, so, you know, a lot of it, I was, in a sense, talking about our contemporary perceptions of the past, but you're right, I mean, this comes from contemporary, uh, attitudes towards surgeons as well, yeah, I mean, um, you know, surgeons were, appropriating the bodies of the poor for their own personal and professional ends.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in what we would
1: now regard and what contemporaries regarded as, although they wouldn't have used these terms, deeply unethical, you know, deeply unethical um, ways. Um, and so, actually, what what one of the things in the book that I look at is um, the ways in which that appropriation of bodies was justified um in emotional terms you know so there's been a lot of attention put on the anatomy act um on on the Justification of the anatomy act along utilitarian lines of you know this is this is a social good and that fundamentally is how it's framed but utilitarians also say well you know the body hasn't the, the dead body has no emotional value in itself except for those relatives who are left behind right the only people who care about a dead body are the loved ones and so their argument is if there are no loved ones so if there is no if there are no relatives there is no emotion Mm. and this they they deploy this narrative what they call the friendless corpse basically and so you know there's an attempt to kind of um work around public anger and public disgusts with this practice by saying well you know what, what if there's no one left if there's no relatives to care about the body it means nothing it's the, you know it's much better that it be appropriated for the you know the, the sort of saving lives probably lives. good yeah saving lives exactly improving surgical knowledge proving surgical um technique and expertise and, and scientific knowledge yeah i mean that is fundamentally the, the narrative that they
0: i do i wonder if there's a little bit of a in the public consciousness almost a fear of in the it a fear of like what the extension of that logic can lead to. And then oh, me- sure. maybe that's where some of these, uh, le- uh, where some of these legends and myths get supercharged.
1: Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and, and a, a kind of callousness or, mm-hmm. or, or you know, cold hard heartedness or a coldness. I mean, surgeons are often accused of that throughout the early 19th century of being cold and hard hearted. Um, and of course, this coldly utilitarian logic doesn't help <laughs> their case in that mm-hmm. sense. Um, but I think yeah, I mean, I think where, where the Burke and Hare case supercharges it is well, what is the limit of, of of kind of of this logic? <laughs> you know, if if human bodies are up for grabs, could it be possible that you know, um, um, you know, these bodies aren't just they can be manufactured <laughs> as much as yeah, uh, yeah. as much as you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I'm disinterred, and that really does that really does cause you know, it, 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 again, it, to use that phrase, it supercharges the debate. You know there have been already been a debate about the body snatching but it yeah this this puts it into a different into a different realm uh, because you do have you know you then have the specter of, of of you know medical surgical practitioners you know taking dead bodies murdered bodies
0: for their yeah. purposes yeah.
1: with very little very little questioning of of uh, of where they came from that's only the case in the Scottish case although the 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 the, the, the so-called Italian boy case actually they they try and sell the body, but but um, but but the actual they're rumbled by by the practitioners. They try and sell it to actually, so it doesn't always work that way. Um, but
0: yeah, I just, do you have any specific questions? Because I realise I've been kind of waffling on
1: about. Um...
0: Uh, I had well, a, I had a couple, but uh, you uh, more or less roundabout answered most of them. Okay. Um, and I've I've also really enjoyed listening to you talk about uh, medical history more than more than my my questions. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> um, that's
1: good. That's good to know.
0: The questions I had were sort of around, uh, were around myths, how they develop, and like how you've come across them and how you've combated them. So, mm-hmm. or how you've sort of uh, identified and researched them. So, like, um, I guess, I, I, I was wondering how you came across the myth of Robert Liston. But I guess, being a, a, a doctor of history and modern medicine, mm-hmm. it, he would have been a fairly large figure in it. When did I guess? When did you first realize that his most popular story was um, was probably mythical? well yeah it's
1: interesting you ask i mean i guess i guess in the first chapter of the book i wanted to use liston as a as a way of thinking about um the complexities of what i call the kind of the emotional regime of, of romantic uh surgery and about his kind of ambivalent status as a as a physic as a as a kind of uh, a, a kind of highly accomplished operator um because i was interested in ways in which actually you know the image we have of, of, of 19th century early 19th century pre-anesthetic surgery is of this kind of flamboyance and showmanship and, and and what have you and listening is definitely the icon of that but actually what i'd come across in my research was actually lots of surgeons saying well that's bad you don't want to we don't we, we want to put the patient's interest before like our own kind of fame and celebrity and 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 we shouldn't be operating for the sake of it we shouldn't be kind of you know sort of performing with an audience in mind we should be performing you know for the good of the patient and so I was interested in Liston's status within this. so I, just, I began to kind of explore Liston's contemporary um, representation and it just occurred to me that you know there seemed not to be a disconnect between how Liston represented that period and how it was perceived in the popular histories but that the kind of stories that I was hearing about that I knew about Liston that circulated about Liston you know in 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 kind of contemporary popular surgical histories uh didn't seem to have any grounding in in the material I was reading at the time in The Lancet and, the london medical gazette or the bmj or whatever uh, bmj or whatever and so i guess i kind of like you i went down this rabbit hole where i thought well, where does this story kind of come from and i was led to um to gordon's book um through that i think it is gordon isn't it i i am worried that i'm kind of consistently getting his name wrong going um, uh,
0: richard uh, gordon was uh, the up. one who wrote uh yeah the, richard the, gordon
1: yeah yeah what is it called now um you know the, the sort of um uh the the, the, the yes i've forgotten what the it book's great called a great medical disasters of yeah. Yeah. and i was su- really surprised by how influential this book had been yeah but even on like wikipedia wikipedia's now been um been edit- re-edited actually the listed entry but when i first looked at it the listed entry uh, on wikipedia was always entirely based on richard gordon's book and i thought well this is a guy who wrote doctor in the house and, and you know <laughs> a, and he's just, he was not a great authority on on medical history and yet it it's the entire basis of where and you know let's face it wikipedia has a major role to play in in kind of shaping people's um, understandings of these things because it's often people's first point of call um and i say this even as a professional historian that you know, i might go to wikipedia and, look, and then of course i might interrogate that afterwards but like it's the place you'd go to look up stuff you know um for many people so i was thinking oh well, this is weird why is gordon's book so influential and then i went to gordon's book and i realized it was like three pages of slightly sensationalist um kind of storytelling that didn't, I felt enough, like, didn't ring true to me. That was the thing, actually. It just didn't ring true. It didn't, it seemed exaggerated. It seemed sort of um almost tongue-in-cheek, actually. And I actually I do wonder if actually the intention was slightly tongue-in-cheek, you know? It was like a kind of horrible histories before its before its time. I was just thinking that. <laughs> Yeah, it is like oh, we're here. Let's let's have a sort of slightly hyper kind of version of the past that's sort of only partially related to it. And it, this is—he was a fiction author. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And 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 a fiction author who basically you know kind of wanted to create a, a you know a slightly kind of um, a kind of slightly I don't I'm trying to think of the right word a slightly kind of uh, humorous vision of the medical profession. You know, it, it's it's a it's a it's a kind of. It's almost like a picaresque kind of thing and, and and i think this is almost the image you have of 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 of, of in this is kind of almost hapless you know kind of a hapless bungler but a kind of talented but hapless bungler and i thought this is this is not what i'm getting from resources at all i'm getting a much more kind of complex picture uh and so yeah like you I, I kind of thought okay where does this story come from and i sort of traced it just through sort of um because you know Gordon does list his sources, but he, he only lists those sources, really.
0: Yeah, yeah, just those yeah, two no, magazines no. that don't mention the 300% mortality at all. No, they don't. They don't, and that's why that's why
1: I, I guess where it goes, it branches out. Yeah, because you've got the kind of, you've got the Yankee Dodge, you've got the, you've got the sort of um, the, the ether, the first use of ether as the main focus of those articles. And and funnily enough, where did I come? I'm trying to think how I ended up tracing the Wangensteins as a source for this 300% mortality. I think mm-hmm. I'd read the scenes anyway, because they're, a, they're, a, they're a, a kind of classic text of the rise of surgery, you know, as a kind of narrative. And I thought, oh, hang on, this is referencing here to three people, be, or two people, you know, again, you know, you could tell that he was blending similar stories. Similar oh, sources. Yeah, that kind of did similar kinds of work. And so that, yeah, that's how I discovered it really, is just kind of wanting to unpack Liston's mythology at the time. And actually end up kind of unpacking this contemporary mythology, too, and it's interesting uh, the book concludes basically in, There's an epilogue of which I kind of look at. The myth creation, the kind of post the post antiseptic myth creations about surgery and I try to bring it up to the con- modern period with contemporary popular histories and they are all rooted you know they're all rooted in that in that in that era I'm about Lindsay Fitzharris's book. Um, which is hugely successful and, and I'm sure will be hugely influential in shaping people's ideas about surgical history, um, for good or ill, is is really rooted fundamentally in a Listerian mythology. I mean, a Listerian hagiography. Um, all the sources it relies on are runs written by Listers' pupils and relatives, or um, uh, well, not his relatives. Sorry, his, his 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 kind of pupils and his and his associates um and so it's it's yeah it's intriguing to kind of see how these myths work and that's i guess how i got into it really is is you know i mean i realized incidentally that if i you know if you if you did this with every narrative about past you could end up just it will be an it'd be a it'd be a sisyphean task like you would just never stop because so
0: many of the things we just take for granted about the past as you've discovered and as you know yeah. From, yeah. From, from your podcast Yo, know, well, I had to do it with Listen. Oh, I had to eventually just best. be like, I found enough information. I need to stop researching this. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Because because so much of what we know is 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 in a sense a product of of anecdote and and all we think we you know, anecdote and stories yeah. are related, You know. Um. But yeah. So that's how I that's how I kind of got into it. So um,
0: what's uh, you've you've touched on a couple of them, but sort of what are the what what are other big some other big myths that you found in sort of modern medical history?
1: oh oh god
0: i mean it's replete with them in many ways i mean i guess the one
1: i I really wanted to to tackle in this book the big myth um is basically this image of the surgeon as cold and hard-hearted i mean that was that was the pre-anesthetic surgeons cold and hard-hearted that was the really big myth and it's astonishing how how stubborn it is um how it, it goes to the heart of everything we think we know about the history of surgery and you know and you look at the material and you think it's just it's just nonsense isn't it, it it's not to say that you know there weren't people who are callous of course there are there are people who are callous now but when i look closely you know at the material the, the discourse around surgery is full of uh, full of language of feeling and full of a language of sensibility of pity of compassion um as one might expect in an era which is defined by by feeling i mean you know this is this is the kind of great this is the age of romanticism the great age of feeling yeah you know, this is where emotions are kind of seen as being integral to one's sense of self and one's um one's kind of uh emo- authenticity as an individual uh and one's kind of social relations um so yeah they were very much concerned with feelings um i mean in terms of other narrative you know uh i mean again related to liston um there's the kind of stuff about cleanliness as well i guess you know so if anaesthesia has its set of myths then antisepsis is a set of myths as well and there's whole stories you know that are circulated about Semmelweis um and 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 all that kind of stuff that becomes part of the narrative of of um you know what we'd love to hear about often in, in, in in heroic narratives of progress is is the 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 the, frust- the the frustrated genius right? The 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 genius who is unheralded in their own time, but then gets gets to be proven right, basically. Uh, and I think Semmelweis kind of fits that narrative perfectly. Um, you know, well, he was doing the right thing, and, and of course you dig more into this, and you realise you know these people are doing it for completely different reasons to the ones that we might think. The same thing is true, incidentally, of James Lind and and and, and scurvy, right? Like, people think, oh, you know, he discovered that. You know, he discovered that citrus fruit, you know, can alleviate scurvy. And there's some idea that, well, that must be something to do with some kind of inchoate notion of vitamins. <laughs> Slim knew nothing about vitamins, vitamins didn't exist until <laughs> the 20th century. He was doing it for reasons that were eminently 18th century, about you know, um, about kind of pores and and bodily fluids and movements and circulation of air and all this kind of stuff. So his rationale for doing it is is totally removed from medical modernity you know?
0: i found people... that a lot with uh with Ignaz Semmelweis. i feel like his myth has really grown with COVID, like as sort yeah. of people focus a lot more on hand washing you can really yeah. see a build up in sort of chatter about him from yeah. 2019 onwards and yeah it's yeah. already you can already see sort of people taking stories around him and like putting them on him like there was yeah. one of uh, a contemporary of his who committed suicide um, and it was connected to sort of Semmelweis' research. It's like a really popular story within his. But I've found people now taking his story and then sort of pulling him out of it, and then putting it on Semmelweis to like lead to his death. I'm like, no, wait, yeah. that's a separate story. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And same with Absolutely. like uh, people trying to say that he understood germ theory, even though he was yeah. like very much still a miasma, like he still very much believed in miasma. It's like, n- no.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think germ theory is another very interesting case in point, you know, that that. There is a desire to see a kind of um, to to kind of see. I mean, it's, it's the kind of Whiggish notion of history, right? The kind the kind of notion that you know, one we can trace a linear progression from you know things mm. that were bad to things that have improved, and we can kind of see. Oh well, this is germ theory. You know, we know that we know that they were right about you know um, um, uh, bacteria and and and, and, and germs. Um, and we can kind of trace back the, the the origins of this. And of course, you end up getting to a situation where people, you know, they're not germ theorists at all. They're working under a completely different, um, a uh, kind of epistemological, uh, ontological, whatever, a uh, kind of framework that that isn't that isn't that isn't anything to do with germ theory. And you could, you could say, well, you know, Fracastoro back in the sixteenth century was you know like a germ theorist because he believed in fromites. Well, no, nothing to do with germs. And actually, some of the some of the you know the, the best literature things like Michael Walberg spreading germs. Try to show the complexities of that, of that process whereby you know, a a kind of you know a single pathological organism became the source of disease. You know? And even in Lister's own lifetime, you know, Lister's a classic case in point as well. You know, the antisept the the kind of the fudging of antisepsis and asepsis. So, like you know, Lister is interested in um, you know preventing. Uh, the infection of wounds through the application of substances, carbolic acid, notably, that will prevent infection or that will that will you know stop it taking root. So he's interested in the kind of the wound as the site of, of, of activity uh, and dressings and those kinds of things. But then later on, shortly after this, basically people become much more concerned about the kind of environment surrounding the patient, right, so cleanliness, Clean spaces, um, and this kind of aseptic um uh, uh, kind of um idea. So that rather than being you know a uh, kind of uh, uh, sort of targeted against um germs, it, it it's a space where there are no germs in the first place. Right? And then of course, what happens is people people after this they go, oh yeah, he meant that. That's what he meant, actually. That's what he was doing. Even though he wasn't, he was actually opposed to asepsis as a theory in many ways early on. And so yeah, he he becomes, you know. The hero who kind of combines all of these complex things into one figure um and as you say it's the same with people like Semmelweis as, as well who who are sort of convenient hooks upon which to hang kind of our story of progress and, and that's I and mean, that's where the roots of most kind of mythologizing comes from in, in surgery i think um is this desire to see sort of great men and it often is men right uh, uh as as these kind of heroic individuals battling against superstition and ignorance you know Similar things you see happening with you know, narratives about Galileo or whatever in history of science, you know um which again turn out not to be true. I mean, the other classic the classic example is 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 John Snow, right? John mm. Snow. So this heroic narrative of John Snow discovering that the pump in Broad Street was the source of cholera and removing the handle and all this kind. it's the story is a kind again, is a kind of extrapolation of facts, but is 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 you know is far more complex.
0: Um, ah, see, so yeah, I've only I've only uh, interacted with the story of Jon Snow as a. Uh, I think I, I think I might have only seen the myth- mythologized one that he basically found the fecal oral route and like recommended yes. to like uh, treat water, but then was shut down on cost concerns. Is that yeah? yeah. Is that not true?
1: <laughs> well, no, it's far more complex than that. I mean, it, it is true that Snow, um, you know, was concerned with water as a potential you know source of of, of transmission of cholera. Um, but the kind of heroic narrative of, I mean, there's people who know, who've written far more persuasively about this than I have. Um, like Graham Mooney and others who kind of, who could do a much better job of of telling you precisely what the kind of, the, where the disjuncture is between the myth and the reality. But this kind of, he's become a kind of um, totem of, of, of kind of, um, what's the word they use for it now? You know, kind of, uh, oh, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the, the phrase like, shoe shoe something epidemiology like you know like shoe leather epidemiology or whatever like where people just going around door to door and you know doing their epidemiological detective work and then coming up with this grand kind of you know theory out of it and then taking action and And he, he's become the quintessence of that when in fact it's more complicated and And indeed ideas about the spread of cholera were far more complicated at the time than 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 we than we might assume now you know there's contagionism anti-contagionism contingent contagionism and, you know, I emerging ideas about fungal transmissions and all sorts of things. Um, so in a kind of proto-germ world, it's just it's it's this massive different kind of sort of factors that feed into it. But we want to see this monocausal, you know, we want to who's the guy who discovered the kind of monocausal origin of this disease. You know? And who held them back? And who held them back, exactly. Who the bad guys and who the good guys, you know? Um, you know, who's the Catholic Church in this and who's Galileo? basically. And that's, that's, I think, at the heart of a lot of this mythologizing.
0: That pretty much answers my, what my, my next question was going to be, which is why do you think these myths take hold?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think they're, yeah, they're rooted in, in, in that, in that kind of whiggish historical um, tendency um, to see the past as a kind of, a, a kind of storehouse of stories for why we're better off now than we were then you know what i mean um and and of course as then as i was saying earlier in contesting that you come up against the objection well aren't things better now <laughs> than they were in the past um and of course the, the the answer generally is most often case yes um but then the kind of classic historical coder comes in well it's a bit more complicated than that that's that's
0: what I thought academic historians often end up doing is going well it's a bit a little (laughs) I I I find Um, that I start basically every episode with yeah it's 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 complicated (laughs) yeah exactly exactly
1: it's the more research you do the more you find out the more of a perspective you get the harder it becomes to tell an easy story right I mean, that's just, that's true of many things, I suspect. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, oh, it's,
0: it's the right. same in uh, in journalism a lot of the time, that yeah. you wind up, you very quickly run into a wall of, well, do you tell the simple story that people are going to interact with, or do you tell the yeah. complex story that doesn't give a satisfying answer? Yes,
1: absolutely. I mean, for example, you know, the, I'm sure there's myriad instances of this. And, you know, the problem is that also as soon as you try and complicate things, you can also run into, run into trouble in terms of, um, you know, being seen as 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 reactionary maybe you know so like you know this happens in kind of science with around science and and we you know we've seen this particularly with covid right that if you if you complicate um people's or seek to complicate people's understandings about how medical and scientific facts come to be facts there's a danger that you're seen as a relativist or a denier or working against the interests of science and public health, etc. You know, this happens all the time in kind of history of science, where you know history of science, history of medicine, where we as historians go, well, actually, you know, the kind of origins of this are a bit more complex, and and actually, facts are culturally constructed; they aren't simple. They don't simply drop out of the
0: sky. Um, you know, they are they are human products. And then, can you give me day- any um, any examples of that? Any like anecdotes of?
1: Well, I guess I mean, I guess you know. I mean, I guess, you know, for those of us looking at how uh, those are people who look at the history of epidemiology, for example. Right. You know, if you if you begin to introduce human um, elements into that story. Or indeed, the history, let's, let's take this let's rewind. Let's take the history of anti-vaccination. Right. You know, there is a long and complex history of anti-vaccination. Um, there has been opposition to vaccination ever since vaccination was a thing and there have been a variety of different reasons for why that is that might be about individual liberties which resonates with today it might be about fear of you know the introduction of a foreign substance into the body and what that might do to our health um if you sort of begin to talk about these things uh you know publicly in in the context of the cholera the cholera pandemic there's a danger that you're kind of seen as kind of giving giving kind of sucker (laughs) to to to, to anti vivisectionists sorry to anti vaccinationists right like well you're just we'll show you that they're part of the long and noble tradition of opposition to you know state power or something right and actually what you're trying to do is actually we've always had these problems nothing's new you know um equally you know if you if you there was a a huge controversies kind of surrounding science and and the sociology of science in the early early late 1970s and 1980s where they kind of Um, a school of sociological thought had emerged called social constructivism um, that was kind of applied to the practice of science and something called the sociology of scientific knowledge and you know historians began to say well actually if you look at how scientific knowledge is constructed it's constructed by human beings in social relationships you know interpreting evidence in a particular way and that's how facts are created and that seemed to be anti some people to be anti-scientific right the science (laughs) is about discovery self-evident material facts they're not products of human interaction and human creation and i think that's where you kind of get begin to see it and you know another case in point would be i don't know let's say let's take the example of the ukraine war right so say you want to report on the history of you know russian-ukrainian relations or or something like that or you want to report on you know there's a danger if you if you do any kind of nuancing uh, Ukrainian nationalism or anything like that that you're seen as kind of giving support to you know you, you're, you're you're kind of um uh you know undermining our understanding of who's goodies, who's the goodies and who are the baddies in this in this narrative
0: right? it's something I've I've had this I've been talking to some people about reporting in the Ukraine war recently because there's sort of very low level like journalistic chatter about it because Ukraine has handled the media so well. Like they, like their media relations are incredible. But one of the things that's kind of bugged me a little bit is that so many journalists on the Ukrainian side have approached it completely uncritically. So like you yeah. never see um you you never see photos or videos or audio recordings of sort of Ukrainians suffering when it's not caused by Russians. Or like you don't see sort of the the aftermath of battles and stuff. And obviously the Ukrainian government wouldn't be wouldn't want people to be doing that. But you sometimes need journalists to push in ways that you don't want them to push in. Things like, well, what's the aftermath of this Ukrainian offensive, or you know, what yeah. happened here, what happened there. And the problem is, as soon as you start talking about that, people start going, "Oh, so you, you want that? You want journalists to push an anti-Ukraine narrative?"
1: Yeah, you're, an like, apolo- you're a reputed apologist. Yeah, you're a Russian. Troll. Like, no, no, no. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's re- yeah, exactly. So I can still believe that the Russians are in the wrong here, and also want to know more things, and 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 have a more complex story, and actually sometimes investigate uncomfortable. Aspects of, of 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 the conflict, you know, it's all uncomfortable in that sense. But you like, um, to kind of to 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 push, yeah, you know, that there's been, you know, there has been top comment about it, but the deconstruction of Zelensky's kind of PR machine, yeah. which is is <laughs> exceptionally exceptionally professional, um, but yeah, so yeah, it, it, I think there are any 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 circumstances in which you, you 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 know, especially, and I don't I don't want to be one of those, it's cancel culture, but you know. <laughs> And that's nonsense too but in, but you know in any in a in a, in a in a world of instant information and information overload and social media when you could say anything and be wrong the next day or or like you can say anything on Twitter and basically offend someone immediately
0: <laughs>
1: I mean I see this even within academic communities which are you know kind of relatively sort of echoes in many cases kind of you know, can be an echo chamber but there's there's no limit to who you can offend by the most innocuous of things if, if someone chooses to take offense and see it as as, as insensitive to them it's impressive um, <laughs> it is impressive it's impressive how quickly a fairly innocuous tweet can can offend someone you know um and i don't again i don't want to kind of go on about cultures of offense because i it's such a it's such a it's such a kind of freighted you know political kind of you know rhetoric from the right but there is certainly a kind of sense in which yeah i don't really say very much on twitter about anything <laughs> of my work just because the you know I certainly don't talk about academic you know my academic life because it might offend someone who thinks that I'm in a position of authority or something or or like you know that I am privileged or whatever um and 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 doesn't speak to their experience which may yeah. be true yeah. you know, but like it sort of it somehow would invalidate my 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 you know I mean every day on Twitter there'll be someone saying something about academic Making the same old mistake of saying what you should do as an, you know, how you should how you should be as a PhD student or how you should be as an early career researcher or whatever. This is what you should do, and of course they just get taken down by like a tsunami of of offense and and, and pushback. You know, there's
0: a lot, there's a lot of weirdos online. Sometimes you got to ignore them. You do, you do. I mean, you know, Twitter is just, you know, it's a. what can I say? It's which uh, well, probably it's probably going to go down over the weekend, I've so <laughs> Don't don't say that online. too loudly. You'll get your account cancelled. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. yeah. So, anyways, do
0: you have any other questions? Um. Oh, I just had one last question. Then I should probably let you go because uh, have yeah. been talking for like an hour now. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the last one was just how do you go about uh, identifying and researching popular myths in your sort of day to day job, in your day to day life? Yeah.
1: Um, I mean I don't I don't, you know, I don't see myself kind of fundamentally as a as a as a myth buster. Like, you know, I don't go and find in the way that indeed you might, you know, you might conceive of your of you of what you're doing with your podcast as doing that. And I think that's that's great. And in a sense, I just don't have the time, you know, to kind of tackle every every misconception. But I think if something falls in it is in my area of interest and expertise, I'll, you know, like any academic historian can try and try and um articulate a more nuanced and more complex and and, and more authentic uh, uh, account of events i think basically it's just archival research really i mean you've, you've seen it you've seen it at work yourself you've done it yourself you you follow up footnotes and then at some point you come mm-hmm. against the wall, upper wall where there is no more reference you know and and you realize that actually you can't trace this reference back any further than 1905 maybe 1890 and actually the incident to which it refers, which took place, say in the 1840s, there's nothing between then and and then you then you're kind of which you know, is so
0: frustrating.
1: But yeah, but then your spidey sense goes, oh, okay, well this is this is this is this is where the this is this is the myth then most likely. You know, this is something which has come from a later source, been elaborated and and you know, may have some kind of tenuous connection with events, may have some, there may be a phrasing that's you know changed over time. Um, but basically, yeah, it may be frustrating at one level, but I think because yeah, you can go in any different, you know, in any number of different directions with it. But but you, if you can't find anything, say you can't find anything between 1846 and 1890 to support this claim, then something's happened. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> something's happened, and 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 it's probably not original. You know, if it isn't supported by people's testimony at the time, uh, accounts at the time, then it's it's probably been you know um, invented. Or certainly um elaborated and you know um exaggerated in the interim i'd say yeah so, so i think that, yeah just <laughs> simple, you know, simple archival research really
0: so that does that uh just one more question um yeah. it does make me wonder how do you deal with that sort of problem of compounding errors in academia um mm. because like the one thing i've found is like a lot of people uh so i i try I actually tried to um sell to a bunch of websites basically you know the this uh, that had published the robert listen story in the past basically yeah this isn't true he like he's he's like would you like a would you like a counter article for that and no one wanted it which was very no. really frustrating but the, one of the things that they always referred back to and some some of the editors actually sent it back to me and like oh this was this is our proof was the bbc and the atlantic articles because they're both yeah. very respected uh, publications yeah. who had both just uncritically cited uh richard gordon and um Uh, yeah i sort of wonder how does like how does that work in academia when people take some to take uh cite something out of context or cite something wrong where you can't go back and check every citation and then it passes under the radar it's
1: tricky it's really tricky i mean you know trying to trying to balance your own references and manage your own references can be difficult you know i mean i'm sure even in my in my recent book there is the odd reference that i've misplaced or or that i've cited the wrong thing you know just because you're, you're dealing with such a huge volume of material um i try and be fastidious one things i I really try and do for example is is, is do my references as i go along um and make sure that i'm referencing the thing that i think i'm referencing um i mean it's interesting isn't it it's about kind of authority and proof and what counts right like as you say if, if if newspapers can say well the bbc says it's true so it must be true you know that that'll do for them that generally won't do for historians um but then again at the same time you know I've seen very very respected um people I respect not just who are respected by others but people I respect enormously such as Alison Winter in her book you know um well she will reference something which turns out not to be true um but that's you know I think Mm -hmm. as long as we are willing to learn and accept that Mm -hmm. actually you know and I'm I'm, you know I'm sure I've perpetuated a number of myths over the years in, in, in things I've written um that you know If if another scholar came along and and dug further, would find out were more complicated than that, or 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 actually maybe just were inaccurate. And I am happy for that to happen. I think as long as you that's the nature of of history or historical writing, people are always going to come along, they're going to have a new interpretation, they're going to have a new perspective, they're going to find new facts, new evidence, new material, and they're going to correct that narrative or they're going to reshape it in different ways. And I think it's just about being open to that and and accepting of that and say, someone points out to you, do you know actually in your book you say this and that's wrong? I'll hold my hands up and say, I'm glad you found out. I'm glad you found that out. Um, because half the time I'm relying on other people what they've researched and you know, you can't go and check every single footnote you've ever read and check it back. You know, you'd, you'd end up, you know, you'd end up losing your mind, I think. So yeah. I've definitely just- found yeah. that yeah.
0: professional yeah. historians, where um, we're like, for, for just this project, contacting professional historians, if you're like, oh, it seems like this is maybe a little bit off. They're like, they're generally like, maybe. <laughs> They're, might, yeah, they're very like totally they're very possible. willing to like uh, explore explore their own ideas even if it's like even if it means that they might have got something wrong whereas yeah. amateur historians i've contacted them amateur historians about things um i found i found that they often take them like they they take their research much more personally they get very defensive you're like this seems like yeah. you've done this wrong they get very angry at you
1: <laughs> i think it's about forms of authority isn't it i mean you know i guess as an academic historian you know I mean, it's an increasingly tenuous and tenuous authority these days with a kind of attack on, <laughs> on expertise and everything else. But I guess you have a kind of form of authority that comes from your qualifications and your institutional affiliation, whatever, and your kind of disciplinary identity that I found, yes, historians are far more likely to cave. You know, actually, maybe, maybe you may be right. You probably are right. You know, I've, I've spoken to people over the years who've who've got almost no sense of ownership over anything they've ever written after a certain period of time. like, yeah, well, you know, I, I can't remember <laughs> what I wrote um and i think i, I think yeah for, for kind of non-professional historians and non-institutionally affiliated historians there's a kind of even more of an emotional investment in that in that in that book the thing you've produced as being you know um uh, an rather than your title of, as professor or lecturer or reader or you winner know, whatever um so i think yeah i think i think that's probably where it comes from it's understandable. Uh, it's understandable it's understandable in many, in many ways you know um mm-hmm because uh, you know the irony of course is that you know popular historians are widely read far more widely read than academic historians are you know um and i think that's something we generally have come to accept but hopefully through a kind of glacial kind of process of accretion of ideas and knowledge what academic historians write ends up informing kind of what 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 the public think about things what popular historians write about things and i think in some senses that's our kind of Oh, that's our cosmic reward <laughs> if not a personal one it's like the information is there if you want it it is there if you want it absolutely 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 yeah exactly and you know um it may or may not have an impact on public understandings but I think ultimately it does sh- you know things shift understanding shift and that does come from um there's this, there's an interesting you know there's a fascinating relationship between popular history and, and academic history and sometimes it can be a conflictual one and a and and and, and one of tension but I think as long as you know popular historians acknowledge that actually a lot of what they're getting is from academic research you know um lots of people do their own research but also lots of other people rely on secondary you know on on on, on academic materials to produce a more popular engaging account you know? I rely
0: almost 100 on academic material <laughs> <laughs> I I don't have the time to be doing like I I did some undergrad history courses so I and obviously journalism is very research-based the Robert Liston one is probably the closest to real like real historical research I've done. And it took so much of my time. <laughs> I was like, Absolutely. I'm I just hundred percent have to rely on like JSTOR, and my old like uh <laughs> yeah. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And that's and that's great. And 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 you know, not all not not all historians, in fact, ma- ma- many historians are not especially good at or indeed interested in communicating with a popular audience. Um or or rather they would somehow say that communicating with popular audience would mean them kind of, I don't know, like dumbing down what they want to argue. And so I think popular history plays a vitally important role in communicating those ideas more accessibly and and, and more engagingly in many ways.
0: Um, yeah, I sort of hope that I'll be able to sort of well, I um uh, in, in my in my dreams, I sort of hope that I'll be able to bridge that a little bit. Yeah. Um yeah. sort of more than you are
1: that's what public history does best I think when when it's at its best that's what it does is it it communicates these ideas you know kind of engaging and 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 a a, a sort of a a readable and and accessible way because some historians don't generally write in the most obtuse obtuse prose but some can you know and I think people get overwhelmed by footnotes and you know historiography and the structure of argumentation and all that kind of stuff you know they want a story really they want they, yeah. most people want to hear a story they don't want to hear one historian arguing with another dead historian
0: about <laughs> something that happened in the past you know so anyways I better get going but it's been a pleasure yes talking. I should let you go thank you so much for talking to me Michael it was fantastic I, I learned a lot and it's some really good material and that's pretty much the episode i hope you enjoyed it as much as i enjoyed talking to dr brown um, if you're interested in learning more about this i would suggest uh going and checking out dr brown's book emotions and surgery in britain 1793 to 1912 it's available online for free uh through cambridge.org you can also go check out his uh, twitter page at med man um surgery and emotion also has its own twitter page which is just uh at surgical emotion But that is our episode. As always, don't hesitate to leave me any feedback at historicalhysteria at at gmail.com. Check the social, r slash historicalhysteria on Reddit and at Manic History on Twitter. And that is all. Bye.